Hi, horny. Oh, God. Don't even, don't even oh, think sorry. it. I was just reading out my text message. <laughs> You're so pleased about that. It's pathetic. I'm so pleased. I never got in the crossfire of getting sent any porny stuff when everyone else had it. Who? So who sent you that message? I don't know. It was sent from an um, email address. Okay. Well, what's the email address? I think the viewers need to know. <laughs> Listen to you viewers. You're the, still stuck the, in the telly land, aren't you? The Thinking public, you're the star of telly. The public should be told. Welcome to the You Didn't Let Me Finish podcast. I'm Lovely ben... listeners. <laughs> okay, I'm Ben Ando. I'm a former BBC News correspondent and now I'm just a podcaster and I do stuff like this and it's fun. And who on earth are you? I'm clearly horny, and oh I, I'm horny Plymouth. Oh, God, you're so pleased about that. And I'm Victoria Mitzi, and I'm so pleased when I annoy Ben. Middle-aged are... woman drops off sexual radar and gets thrilled when she receives a, a harassment text message. What would that have to do with me? <laughs> Considering the fact that you're the benchmark for middle age, I'm teenager. Uh, well, fair enough, yeah. Well, you are considerably younger than me, it is true. I'm considerably younger than thou. <laughs> and who have we got? We've got Dr Mark Pettigrew. Big round of applause, everyone. <laughs> Criminologist extraordinaire. <gasps> well, oh, that was just so exciting for me. So um, I don't even care if you think that I'm, I'm past my prime. I'm a true crimer and I love it. You're very, very excited about Dr. P. Very excited, Dr. P. <laughs> you love the Dr. Monica, don't you? <laughs> He's Dr. Beat. Do <laughs> He's Dr. Who. <laughs> it, was at the, it was at the beginning of the interview. Hello, hello, <laughs> Dr. Who. Dr. Hello. <laughs> Actually, we should call you Dr. Who with your interview. I'm Technology Dr. skills. <laughs> Doctor Dr. what? Doctor what? Doctor you what, eh? <laughs> Doctor, where is he? <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> my interviewing skills. <laughs> what interviewing skills? They're non-existent. <laughs> no, you are quite good. You do ask the, like, stock BBC corkers. Oh, that's the worst Anyways, kind of thing to say to somebody. We talk about necrofetishism, this podcast. <laughs> Ooh, hold on to your hats, well, hold on to your pants, everyone. <laughs> hold, 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 hold on to your dismembered heads, everyone. <laughs> no, you won't get that on any other podcast. Uh, <laughs> so Dr. Mark Pettigrew has written, um, well, he's he's written the foreword to a book that is the, the ramblings, I suppose you'd call it, of the serial killer Dennis Nielsen that were collated after his death by, by a friend of his. And... It, you know, you might think, oh, I'm not sure I'd, that should be published or what. And it's interesting to hear what Mark says about that, because I think he gave a very, very compelling and, you know, very, very plausible um, assessment of, of where the sort of the line is in terms of whether it should be published or shouldn't be published. And it has been published. So obviously we know where, where yes. he lies. Yes, hot off the press, actually. But before we go to that, we're going to let you know, fill you in on what's coming later in the podcast after his interview. Uh, Bolton Ice Cream Man who chased children <laughs> down the street loses his license is one of them and uh, more dildo fun everyone yeah. matron take them away oh. it's yeah. still it's still dacious 
<laughs> it is and a bit of interaction but so uh, yeah the history of a drowning boy is the name of the autobiography of dennis nilsson and um dr mark pettigrew was kind enough to join us sad fucks <laughs> for, the, for the interview you speak for yourself i'm a very happy fuck <laughs> well, one sad fuck. No, actually, two sad happy fucks. <laughs> and uh, yes, so, so let's go to Mark, shall we? Okay, well, it's lovely to see you, Dr. Mark Pettigrew. Thank you. Nice to see you too. Thank you for joining us on the YDLMF podcast. Very, very welcome. <laughs> Firstly, I'll, I'll start by asking you, how come you got involved in this project? In terms of the book, um, I know I know Mark Austin, and he was uh, very good friends with Des, and well, we we both we both knew Des, and I knew that Mark had all these materials that had been collected over the years. I mean, shelves and shelves of correspondence from Des, and I think he want I think he wanted to to put some because Des always wanted to have his diaries published and the Home Office refused. And to be honest, quite rightly so at the time, because this this version, I have to give credit to Mark, because it must have taken him hours and hours to put this together, because Des didn't write chronologically. He would sit down and write about a particular topic. So to, to go through all of that is a, is a massive task for Mark. And also, the original is extremely, extremely graphic. Um, and it's there, there are pieces in there that you just couldn't publish. Well, and that's interesting. I find it still quite graphic. But the, the actual originals are very, very graphic. Not just what happened with his victims, but dreams he had, um, recollections of his own sexual abuse, growing up his childhood fantasies. There's stuff. There, there is some stuff that just it would of the obscene publications act i think we'd have i think we'd have the flying squad knocking on the door saying <laughs> what you know you can't publish this so i have to give all credit to mark for putting this together um and like i say i know him um and i, I was just happy to help him out with it i am from my very very small part <laughs> mark when you came to write um the forward mm. you know what was in your mind at that time run through why it was appropriate now to publish this when quite clearly it wasn't um, during his lifetime. I, I don't know if Mark had actually planned to do, to do this, knowing that the ITV were going to do a drama uh, um, about about Des. When I when I sat down to write the foreword, to be honest, because I've known Des, I knew Des for so long. It, it really didn't take me very long to do it at all. It was just after years of researching with him and knowing him, it, it just kind of wrote itself. To be honest, I didn't know you knew him. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I, I when, when you ask about a definitive answer as to why he became one of Britain's most infamous serial killers and that um, if there's an answer, it'll be found here, did you ever have an inkling or, or a bigger idea than that yourself? I think um, Des would say that it was a, a, a mixture of factors that came to, to make him and who he was. Um, growing up at the time he did when being gay was not only socially disapproved of, it was actually illegal. He had, he recalled sexual abuse from his grandfather. He had strained relationship with other members of his family. His homosexuality forced him to isolate a lot as um, he went into the army, the police and those machismo um, environments. Um, 
and he turned to drink. Drink was a, a big part of, of for him. And so I agree with Desmond as much as if you asked him, why did you do this? He would take responsibility for the harm it caused in terms of the victims and their families. But he would almost say that, well, I, I, this is how life has made me. This is this is how I've turned out because of because of who I, because of these characteristics of being gay, the specific time frame, the sexual abuse, and so on. So, in that sense, he it's a bit of an absolution of responsibility, saying, "Well, you know, all these things happened to me, and this is the result." Do you think there is anything in this, Mark, that um, the families of his victims can um, draw any comfort from? No. No, I really don't. I, I, I would actually, I would really hope that the the victims and the families of the victims, I would actually hope that they didn't read it, to be quite honest. I think it, it's just too, it's too obsessing. And like, with that explanation in mind that almost that Des the serial killer was formed by life, if I was, if I was a, a, a victim's family member or loved one, I would think, well, that's a bit of a cop-out. And to be honest, it probably is. Um, but I, I, I would hope that they don't read this. I really, I really would. Why? It, I think it would just be too upsetting for them, and nobody wants to think of their their loved one being treated like a piece of meat. It's inter It's interesting because Des was a very specific type of necrophile. He was, a, he was what we call a necrofetishist. So he didn't just enjoy sex with corpses. He enjoyed uh, being around them, so he would bathe with them, wash them, eat with them, converse with them. He would form a relationship with them, as, as, as mad as that sounds. So he would genuinely believe he was in a relationship with these men for the limited amount of time that he had with them. Because obviously, once they start to decompose, they can't fulfill their role in his necrophilic fantasy anymore. But what is interesting, the first victim, he burned as a whole on a bonfire where he lived. And that was successful. It didn't arouse anybody's suspicions. Um, no neighbours, you know, were wondering, you know, what's going on here. And it's very interesting because even though it was successful, he changed his pathway of body disposal with later victims. He didn't need to start dismembering them and eviscerating them. He didn't need to do that because he'd already proved that he could success successfully dispose of a body as a whole without arousing anybody's suspicion. Um, so it's very interesting that after the first victim, he started dismembering them, which my reading is that's ending the relationship on his own terms because they've let him down again and he's gone back to being socially isolated and alone. And so they change from his partners and his boyfriends. And in the end, they're just another person that has rejected them. And therefore, they, they, they according to him, deserve that treatment. And that's why... I think he changed from disposing bodies as a whole to dismembering them. Dan? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there's actually a lot to, to sort of, you know, dig into there, um, Mark. And I mean, when you say that he felt he had been rejected, I mean, you know, anybody would say, well, hold on, of course they rejected you because they were just corpses because you'd killed them. But it, it was his fantasy. He was, he was in relationship with them, so it wasn't just sex. Um, like I say, he would he would converse with them, he would dress them, undress them, bathe with them, he would sleep in the same bed as them. Um, and he would mimic all these relationship behaviours for as long as the fantasy could be sustained, for as long for as long as decay and um could be retarded and kept at bay. Um but once that once decay has set in, he can't you can't keep that fantasy going. 
I mean, you, when we talk about that and hear what you're saying and hear, you know, this is what he has described, I mean, do you think he was insane? No. No, I don't. He knew what he was doing. There, there isn't a pattern of insanity about his actions. He's actually very methodical in terms of how, like I say, how he disposed of, of victims and how he evaded detection for so long. And I know we're talking about a different time here, but when police were called, there was, there was a time when police were standing on floorboards that had bodies underneath them. And Des was managed to convince them that it was just a, a lover's tiff. Um, and that's all it was. And so, yeah. no, I don't think you can do, you can do that um, and those actions and be certified and saying, yeah. Watching Des, the ITV drama, he didn't come across as very nice. I mean, I know aside from the murders that he committed, he's quite an interesting person. How do you reconcile the person that you knew with the acts that he did? And did you like him? Well, I have to hold my hands up. I haven't actually seen Des. Um, the ITV show. I don't. I don't ever watch these recreations or these dramas of people I knew or who I've worked with or researched with or any of these true crime documentaries. I, I don't tend to watch them. So I can only say that Des, as a person, was he was very interested in politics, um, current events. He would always send me clippings from the Times of articles that he thought I might be interested in. Um, he had an old school sense of humour, so he loved a, a joke about, you know, Irishmen and Scotsmen. And I think he ever heard a mother-in-law joke that he didn't like, that he didn't enjoy. He was, so it's very removed because I didn't know him at the time, obviously, he was committing these offences. I only knew him afterwards. Um, it's, it, it's weird because it's my job. I can sort of disconnect, uh, disconnect the two, the, the person that I know and then an analysis of what they've done. Um, and what people don't, um, people have this misconception of serial killers. They are not, they're not men with horns and tails and pitchforks. They are, they have normal lives. They have interests in sports, in politics, um, things like that. They, they don't have the mark of the beast about them. And they, they are, they do everything that we do, but as well as that, you know, they, they, they kill. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Ben. <laughs> But no, Mark makes a really good point there. It's, it's what was known, I think, in the aftermath of um, the, the Holocaust as the banality of evil, isn't it? It's the, as you say, it's, um, they, they, they're not people who stand out. Well, the vast majority do not stand out. In fact, that's why they get away with it for so long, because they are so average and normal. They just don't, exactly. they're, not, they're not on anybody's radar. No, I mean, if you think of like Harold Shipman, um, this respectable doctor that was people's friend and confident and nobody had a clue. You know, he had this this other persona. What we what would say is fractured identity. So people can't see um, the fracture, but that's what's hidden from view. And so they can go about their daily lives and do all the normal things that we do. They can hold down jobs. They can even hold down marriages, if you think of Peter Sutcliffe. Um, but then they have this other side to them um, where they are doing these these awful crimes. And can I ask you about your background mm. and how you came to be involved in the line of work that you do? I mean, it's uh, um, it's not your average, you know, what do people say if they meet you in the pub when you tell them what you do? 
I can't remember the last time I went to the pub. <laughs> no, you can't wait. <laughs> you want like a pub, though. You want a pub yeah. here. Well, I did my PhD um, about death row and capital punishment in America. And after I finished that, I started researching the most uh, serious sentence we have here, which is life without parole. And the genesis of life without parole was the Moore's murders, um, particularly Myra Hindley um, and her case. So after a while, I started thinking, well, what's the point in examining the policy of life without parole or capital punishment? without looking at the actions that give rise to it. What are we saying that is so bad that you have to be put to death or you have to remain in prison for, for your natural life? The majority of people that have whole life terms in this country are people who have killed multiple times. And so it, it just happened like that, really. It wasn't a conscious decision when I was when I was studying at university that, oh, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> just, it just kind of, it just evolved. Ben, are you still with us? <laughs> I, th I think I think that I think his ale's gone. <laughs> can you hear us? Mm, yeah, yeah, I can. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. I lost you for a bit, but now I'm back. Good. I think the internet where I'm isn't great, so apologies for that, everybody. Well, maybe you can wind it up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's your go. Put another, like... put another coin in the meter, Ben. <laughs> I'm going to try and go to 4G in case it will make a difference. This is fine by me, Mark, because I can just carry on asking you questions. <laughs> I've got so many questions. I want to, I'm actually really enjoying the book. I mean, obviously, in, in inverted commas, really, because I'm finding that it gives me some kind of idea about him, which I didn't think it would. No, I mean, these are, these are his words. I mean, you're not going to get to know somebody better. I mean, sure, meeting them and talking to them but you're not gonna know somebody better than through their own writing and how, and how they, um, in retrospect, think about, think of what they've done and why they did it and the ramifications of it. And it's important to note that it's not just actually about the, the offenses, the murders that he committed, it's also about before his childhood and also afterwards um, and his life in prison, which um, I think a lot of people kind of, Usually when you have these true crime uh, documentaries and books and so on, they just cover the actual offences and then you don't really hear that much about them. Whereas this is quite detailed in terms of his life in prison because he was in prison for, um, well, near 40 years, I think, maybe 35 to 40 years. And so that's a big chunk of his life, which is, which is dealt with here. Ben, are you with us? Yeah, I'm here, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's kind of I, weird asking here. someone if they're with us, isn't it, in, in a serial <laughs> killer context? Are you, are you out there? It's like a, se <laughs> it's like a seance, yeah. <laughs> I don't want you in my seances. <laughs> Tap once for yes and twice for piss off. <laughs> uh, obviously, you know, as you said, that Mark Austin had gone through all this stuff. What sort of filters were were applied? I mean, obviously, there's the filter of taste and decency, but I mean, yeah. you know, I think one from from somebody from the point of view of somebody who obviously hasn't read the book um, yet, um, it's like, okay, well, I can see that there will be some people who say that we shouldn't necessarily just, you know, give this person a platform to just you know spout whatever they want to say. So, what sort of filters and what sort of analysis did you did you or did mark put in before choosing what went in and what was left out more importantly i, I should say that the this is this is mark is not going to make anything of this all the proceeds from this book will go to go to victims charity so it's you know, to answer that question nobody yeah. is profiting 
um, from this. Um, I can't I can't speak for Mark. Um, the only thing I know is, like I said, because there's roads in chunks and um, at, at different points uh, of his imprisonment, he reflected on different parts, sometimes more than once. And so I can only assume that Mark took a lot out that was repetition. Um, and as you say, the mm. standards of taste and decency, when things were just too explicit, you know, that th they have to come out as well. But I, I, I don't really, I haven't actually asked him what filters um, he used, but I think try, trying to get everything in chronological order, avoid repetition, and just 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 tell the story of of his life. And like I say, not just focus write a book about the murders themselves and their investigation, but write a book that reflects uh, Des um, in his early years and and during his years in prison as well. Aside from Dennis Nilsson, what other big name criminals have, have fascinated you? I, can't, I don't want to. Say, I don't want to say about anybody that I've worked with who's still with us. I suppose. I suppose uh, because this might segue into it. The Moore's murders, and I, I, I spoke with the Brady by correspondence, but I never, I never went to see him because I didn't particularly need to. But yeah, I think the Moore's murders case was probably yeah the gateway into this. And I mean, it's still fascinating today um, because that dynamic between Brady and Hindley. Which and I've and I've gone through Hindley's prison records and her diaries and so on, but still the dynamic between them is, is still quite mysterious and there's still that lingering doubt in everyone's mind was was she controlling him in, in some parts of the crimes or in certain with certain victims and so yeah I think that's probably the case that fascinated me the most because of her involvement specifically I think I think it was um, like like I said because I've, I've read her diaries and her letters and so on and you get to sort of understand the character of somebody and either she was duped or she was either well, perhaps very manipulative and there are all these contradictions about her which which remain unresolved and obviously we'll never know now and i think that's why if they'd have just been if they'd have just been hanged because the death penalty was abolished by the wrong remand if they would have just been hanged they would have been a footnote in history and you or i and most other people would never even heard of them so again, it's it's the first big case after the abolition of the death penalty, and of course I'm I'm in Manchester here, so it's local to me. But yeah, that, that's still the, that's the fascinating one, I think. Yeah, very much so. I mean, you know, it, it is a crime that still some somehow casts its shadow. Certainly, I mean, yeah. you know, that area of Manchester. I've never lived there, but I know it. And you know, you you know, you look up and you see Saddleworth Moor from most parts of Manchester yeah. if you're high enough. You know, you can yeah. see it there. And it's easy to imagine how back in what 1966 or whatever, you know, this this was something that was at that point perhaps people just hadn't heard of that kind of thing before. They weren't no. they weren't familiar with you. I mean, nowadays, you know, we we kind of you know we see lots of documentaries about serial killers, media and mass media and mass communication means that we hear a lot more about these types of crimes. And of course, they're detected as well in a way that perhaps they weren't before. But yeah, at that time, it must have been so completely. Um, outside everybody's um, experience that it's little wonder that it, it casts such a shadow um, over especially you know, because an a population. woman was and like, like yeah. you say because a woman was a woman sexually abusing children and it being recorded on tape mm. um yeah it, it just it just blew everybody's minds and i, I still think now it does because myra hinley is still is still the epitome of, in this country of female evil, if you like. I mean, Rose West did far 
worse things if you if you put these things on a scale i mean truly horrific but it's still mara hindley that sticks out in everybody's mind and there's that infamous mugshot and so people people it's 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 emblazoned on everybody's brain i think that mugshot and then obviously everything that goes with uh, what we assume mara hindley to have been all those emotions of evil and you know a, a woman doing these things to children it's all natural um from the outside looking in yeah, I mean, well, you mentioned the mugshot there, Mark, and I think you're absolutely hitting the nail on the head. It's that era, there was such limited, um, you know, uh, com communication available that one mugshot would dominate every front page. And as soon as you yeah. give it the tag, the Moore's murders, you know, the alliterative, you know, immediacy of that, it, it just tells you exactly what you need to know. And you know there are children involved, you know, this is a man and a woman. I suppose that might have resonance with Bonnie and Clyde in a way. And you, you have this, this murderous couple, uh, you have them as lovers, you have them as scandalous, you have them as, um, you know, the, the, the images that sort of like, you know, in a weird way, when you only have one image and it's in black and white, it's, all, it's somehow all the more resonant and it has all the more power for that reason, for its uniqueness. Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree. And I think, I think Andrew Mugshot was taken at about three, three, half three in the morning after she'd been um, quizzed for, for a number of hours. Um, but it's there's, it's just something about the composition of that photograph, the shadows under under the eyes, and the, you can see the roots in the and in, in the hair, and it's it's a very it's a very very powerful image. And there aren't actually many photographs of Myra Hindley. Um, if I if I can count, I can probably count on one hand the amount of photographs I've actually seen of her. Certainly, you know, not much more than you know five or so. Um, and it's that one that stands out. And if you just put that. If you put that up anywhere, everybody instantly knows who she is and they recall the story. Um, and yeah, a very, very powerful image. Can I ask what an average day is, is like in your job? What do you do day by day? Do you know, do you know a lot of it seems can be quite boring. <laughs> I'm gonna cut I'm gonna cut that bit out. <laughs> if I'm writing a paper. For a journal or i'm writing a speech for a conference it's it's very analytical um looking at, at these things and there's no there's nothing salacious about it you just because you're viewing it so objectively and you sort of categorize people and, and their behaviors I, i'm not out investigating um serial killers i'm not um treating them i'm literally just assessing and analyzing and examining um the psychology behind their actions and so yeah it's very analytical it's not um not that exciting i'm afraid to say does it affect the way that you look at life after years of doing that no there's two things that i can't i can't even read about in the news so any but anything that's about cruelty to animals if i see if i'm clicking through the paper and i see a story about that i can't i can't look at it and anything about the cruelty to elderly people um, you know, you see these horrible documentaries and what goes on in care homes. I, I couldn't watch anything like that. But that's about it, to be honest. Everything else I can look at with an analytical eye and, and it, it doesn't really affect me. So if we pick up on that, Mark, I mean, and go back to Dennis Nilsson, I mean, with your analytical sort of hat on, and you've talked mm. about how he was abused, how, you know, he struggled to form relationships and felt very lonely and all the rest of it. I mean, is, is there anything that could have happened differently that would have stopped him becoming a serial killer? I, I, if, if he had the ability to maintain a lasting relationship uh, in later life, um, 
with a partner that that could have had a, a significant impact because if he had a long a long term partner that would impact other parts of his behavior like his alcohol consumption for example that could have perhaps changed things but we'll ne we'll never know now so it's all it's all conjecture but i, I think if there was one thing it would be uh, it would be a, a, a boyfriend a husband a, a life partner did you feel sorry for him no no, I, I didn't feel I didn't feel sorry for him. I think if there's pity to be laid anywhere, it's with the the victims and and the loved ones. And there are there are many many people that have a bad start in life that suffer abuse um, that are that feel that like they have to stay in the closet with regards to their sexuality and so on. Many people drink problems, and they don't do what he did. Um, I know it's very few, probably a few people that have. All these factors come in at very specific times of their life in a, in a way that mirrors does. But no, I don't. I don't feel. I don't feel sorry for him. I feel sorry for the victims and their and their families. Okay. I mean, I think that's really interesting. Thanks, Mark. I mean, I, yeah. I, that's that's. There's lots there. Um, I, I don't know if you want to ask any more questions, Victoria. So I was going to ask you if you work with the police. Is that were they one of your main? No. No. no uh, this is this is the this is the misconception. I always get asked, do you work for the police? No. Oh, with them, <laughs> so, with them, I mean. Do you, do I, don't you, do you? I don't work with them or okay. for them. The only, the only other contact I would have with the police is if I go to a conference and present a paper and then there might be some police officers in, in the audience that might be there to just attend the conference and just to, you know, see what's happening in the world of academics and, and stuff like that. But I don't have any contact with the police other than that, no. Okay, Which is well, a misconception about my day-to-day -day life. <laughs> I don't want to shatter my misconception at all. Yeah, I think I'll leave that there then before I completely disillusion you. I, I, I thought you wore like a Columbo raincoat and had a magnifying glass. I would love that. I, think, I, I would love that. I think I could really pull off um, you know, that, that raincoat look and the cigar. <laughs> well, apparently the money in podcasts is in the merchandising, so we could sell you a kit, Merch. perhaps. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought it ended up this way? Yeah. Can I also ask you when the release date is? It's it's out now. Oh, I thought um, it was the twenty fifth. Oh, Am I wrong? <laughs> it's it's certainly available for pre order now. Oh, is it? I'm okay, gonna, great. I do because know. I was I'm wondering how a book launch happens when no one goes out. <laughs> what happened? I order it now on all the usual on all the usual websites. And I think yeah. it must be at some kind of first because how many books like this are there in existence in the circumstances that you've written forward and um, they they've been written by the person in question? It's a very unusual <laughs> book, isn't it? It, it, is, it is very unusual. The Home Office obviously have a policy that they don't want any prisoner to make money off their crimes. There was, I think there was a trend some years ago about notorious people, you know, selling artwork and, and stuff like that. Um, so it's very, it is very rare to get, to get something like this into the public domain. I think if I wanted anybody to take anything away from this, it would be to understand the life story of somebody, the before and after the crimes, as well as the crimes themselves. Because like I can say with these kind of TV documentaries and you know true crime books, if they just focus on the, 
on the crime. They don't explore the background. They don't explore the ramifications of imprisonment and so on. So I think it's unique in that sense to to have this in a book format. Um, I, like I said, I haven't seen Des, so I don't know if they did anything about his childhood or his imprisonment, but it's a full life story. So you can get a deeper understanding of you know what what actually happened to this man and what this man did. And that is, after all, what a lot of people who are, I'll say it sort of loosely, into true crime are looking for. They often say that they're looking for the sort of reasons behind why these crimes happen so they can find it here. There isn't a definitive answer. So some, somebody might take away from the book that, oh, it's because he abused alcohol. Somebody else might take away from the book, oh, he's repeating the abuse that he suffered from his grandfather. Because you've got the whole life story laid out in the book people are free to make their own conclusions from that and that's a really great note to end it on and um we're lucky to have you so thank you very much for joining us i've really enjoyed it i've been excited about meeting you i'm off now to find a colombo raincoat and a miss marple glasses and a cardigan <laughs> <laughs> i'll yeah. join you i've got my cardigan already well, yeah, if you start looking like Angela Lansbury, don't expect any invitations to Country House Weekends, that's all I can say. <laughs> I don't get any anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming and yeah, joining Nice us. to talk to you, Mark. Take you care too, now. Thanks. Cheerio. Bye now. Bye. You too. What a man. <laughs> what a moment. Do you know which man I'm referring to, though? <laughs> he's, he's, the man with the plan? <laughs> oh, the man with the academic research paper, you mean? Yes, quite. Uh, he's fascinating, really interesting. Uh, really interesting. What Dr P had to say. I like it. Uh, and a first. What first? I think it's a first, uh, the way that the whole construct, what, what, what we was talking about during the interview, that... It's an autobiography by a UK serial killer, certainly, and uh, the way that the criminologist wrote the foreword and the, the, the Home Office didn't want to allow a serial killer to publish, it's overcome a bunch of hurdles to get where it is and to be a, a unique work, really. What, what other serial killer autobiographies can you think of? Mm. What could there be? <laughs> Rose West's. <laughs> a rose in her garden. Garden in my rose. The Rose West, my, my guide to DIY. <laughs> my guide to how not to sit on a bar stool. <laughs> rose, <laughs> rose West, my husband will give you an estimate. <laughs> and an STD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and one, but he'll he'll just quietly drill a hole in the wall. <laughs> <laughs> my husband... and then return at a later date saying he's left his tool behind my husband's prices will kill you <laughs> oh I'm sorry Dr Mark why are you sorry <laughs> Dr Mark because we're just yeah. sometimes oh, but his, no, his, no, no the book is great I mean come on you know, we are having a bit of a giggle but the book is really good and you know it's, it's, I think it was what he's had to say was really really interesting well let's let's actually press on to more inappropriateness shall we Colin Ireland, my giant's causeway. Sorry. Yes, let's, let's do that. 
An ice cream man's lost his street trading license after losing his cool and chasing a group of children down the street with a stick. The man claimed the children had thrown stones at his van and he wanted to find out where they lived and tell their parents. But a Bolton Council committee took a dim view of his actions and said it was concerned with public safety. Quite right too. It ruled there was reasonable cause to refuse the street trading consent. A report to the council's licensing subcommittee outlined full details on the incident. The local democracy reporting service said... Anyway, yeah, but, so he goes and chases them with a stick. There you go. Yeah, but this is an ice cream man who couldn't stick to his own story because he made a written statement saying he chased them and had a weapon. But in his in the meeting, he then denied that and said, no, he didn't chase them and didn't have a, a weapon. And he claimed that they'd been th- the kids had been throwing stones at his ice cream van. <laughs> Do we think he did or...? I th- I th- I, well, if he's having it, he's Mr Sticky. <laughs> he certainly wasn't Mr. Softy. Well, Mr. If he Nasty. Was in Devon, he would be Mr. Willy. Oh, is that the ice local ice cream van? It's the brand of ice creams around here, and we have great joy at going and saying to my daughter, uh, "Do you want to go for a Willy's? Look, there's a Willy's van over." There. We think it's hilarious, and she gets so excited. It's delicious ice cream. I've got to oh, say, oh god, well, Devon, Devon creamy, mm. Devon creamy, Devon creamy Willies are really good. That's all I'm hearing. <laughs> Sounds like you've had experience, Ben. Oh, I have not. Dennis Nilsson might have done. <laughs> of Willie's. No, he was uh, the other side of the country. Well, yeah, he's in London, but I mean, who knows? He could have he could have come across some poor hapless Devonian who made his way to the big city in search of fame and fortune, and then instead got himself serial killed. I don't think the Willies he was licking were the same as the <laughs> Willies that I'm licking. Well, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> Anyway, I knew some mirth would come out of Willie's. <laughs> are you cla- are you claiming now to be very chaste? Chaste? Nobody's chasing me, Ben. C H A S T E. Oh yes, cross my heart. <laughs> God, Purit- the the puritanical down in Devon. <laughs> yes, I'm going to. I've started to button right up to the neck. <laughs> Actually, it's it's. I'm in a long. I'm, I follow on a long line of uh, of quite strictly religious Protestants on one side. So I, they didn't like any frills, did oh, they? God, you're all those really dull Dutch kind of clog wearing Christians that you're. I think Blackadder's characters were based on my ancestors. <laughs> the Puritans with the with the crosses. <laughs> I got that's no joke. They're a barrel of laughs. Anyway, to keep the laughs going, Lady Whiteadder. <laughs> That's me. I might be Lady Pinkadder after I go and buy a dildo from Poundland. Your Uncle Nathaniel sits on a spike. <laughs> How dare you? That's what they said in Blackadder, isn't it? He we don't have anything as luxurious as chairs. Uncle Nathaniel sits on a spike. <laughs> I don't remember that bit. It's and then brilliant. A, and then they they only feed they only ever feast on God's humble turnip, except the turnip they're served looks just like a willy. <laughs> Oh, yes, the, the turnip that looks like a willy. <laughs> a willy-shaped turnip. Um, talking of that, let's no, talk talking about dildos of, now. Well, let's, let's indeed, um, because, well, goodness me, did you see what we did there? Oh. That almost seemed professional and thought through. So, so we fuck it up now? Well, we've got two kind of dildacious stories to talk about. <laughs> One, you love the word dildo as I a do. fun factor. I, I, I'm hoping it'll catch on. Um, I've... <laughs> 
So we've we've got the the set the Poundland sex toys, which I'm somewhat disappointed to see are all actually a lot more than a pound. And then <laughs> <laughs> you won't be rushing down so, now. That's and, way out of your price. I mean, I mean normally, normally, sort of corpses are all found by men walking their dogs. But there's this dog. <laughs> <laughs> there's this dog, a, a cocker spaniel. Would you? Oh, sorry, a cocker really spring cute. across called Domino that doesn't find. Well, I don't know if it's found a corpse. It found something very penile. Yes, never expected something like this, it said. The owner said, I just burst out laughing. He's holding it in the middle, so it's dangling out of both sides of his mouth. Yeah, we all know it fell out of a handbag. Yeah, or he just brought it from home and he was trotting along proudly. (laughs) That's right. Laura Roberts, 29, so embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, she's looking embarrassed at that photo. She's loving it, isn't she? I'm, I'm intrigued to say, why is there a shelf full of like hair care products behind her? Oh, it was probably her lubricant. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> what well, when she decides to, to go play... in the other way? <laughs> oh, no. You always do that as well. You always bring it to the back door. <laughs> the cocker springer's band. Okay, so, so Laura Roberts was walking her 11-month-old dog, Domino. And I have to say, Domino is a very, very really sweet cute. dog. Very cute dog. So they, they, they're at Armthorpe Pit Top in Doncaster, um, at the weekend, and the Cocker Springers cross ran off and started digging away after noticing the curious-looking stick <laughs> buried in the ground. Now, I'm willing to bet that the, the, the given dog's eyesight is terrible, he didn't see it. I suggest he smelt it. <laughs> oh, he thought it was like a tuna steak or something. Laura said the dog ran back to her and left the sex toy by her feet, expecting her to throw it so they could start playing. <laughs> It wasn't the kind of playing she was. But expecting. she didn't throw it. Oh no! She was she used to him bringing it in back her handbag. She was used to him bringing back all sorts of balls, but not these kind of balls. <laughs> boom, boom. She said the puppy loves playing with toys, but this was a toy he shouldn't have in his mouth. He thought it was a sausage. <laughs> I'm doing some kind of like weird perverted commentary here. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that. So let's find out how we can go and buy one, shall we? So that we can go out and throw it to our dogs. (laughs) Poundland's four pound pink egg vibrator that has shoppers and stitches. These long, lonely lockdown nights are a way of getting to a person, don't they? Starts my London news. (laughs) (laughs) After we've all been starved of human contact for so long and freedom, still a faint blot on the horizon... Can you understand the urge to reach for a silicon, says silicon companion, no E, as a desolate Valentine's Day approaches? <laughs> God! One for, your, <laughs> one for your Silicon Valley. How depressing. <laughs> <laughs> if these circumstances compel you, you're in luck, as Poundland have launched a new bargain sex toy. Right? They're, they're all bargains. Ben, you have to, um, you have to, we have to get now a um, discount card for Poundland. We have to add it to our collection. This is becoming a weekly corner on our podcast of discount shopping. Poundland's Nookie sex toy rate. Oh, you in- said it. You didn't let me say it. I wanted to say it. Oh, it didn't let me finish. It did not let me finish. Okay, go on, say it. Oh, you've said it now. You've spoiled it. Say it and edit me out. <laughs> okay, you can get... The range includes Nookie finger vibrator, Nookie butt plug for just £4, <laughs> Nookie two-in-one rabbit ring. Rabbit ring? What's a rabbit ring? 
Oh, dear. Uh, of course, you can get the classic dildo, Nookie style, for eight quid, and a Nookie G-Spot vibrator. Oh, Nookie, there's one for you, Ben. A Nookie bodysuit in white and black for just five pounds. Well, which bit's white and which bit's black? <laughs> which bit's just a bit crusty after a while? Oh, dear. <laughs> Is any of it brown? <laughs> I held off saying that. Did you see my control? I was very impressed with your control. <laughs> you can also get a Nookie. Is that because you've got a Nookie butt plug up your ass? <laughs> No, actually, I'm rather busy with the Nookie clitoral vibrator. I bought it for £8. And not the Nookie love beads. <laughs> the first thing that springs to mind. That, so, I'm so busy trying to get my tuppence worth in. That sounds a bit rude. <laughs> that I'm not even listening to you until a delay of like a few seconds here. But listen, the first thing that springs to mind is that they're not going to... You'll, you'll be like, way my new vibrator. And off we go. And then the... Batteries, it'll break, won't it? Because it's from Poundland. And then you'll have to go back with your stinky vibrator. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if your vibrator stinks, I'm really sorry about that. (laughs) You could could always leave it for Domino the Cocker Spaniel to find. Well, that's obviously why he found it. It stank of fish. (laughs) But can I just say that this My London spelling's atrocious? There's a, oh, there's a butcher's apostrophe in here. A grocer's apostrophe, you idiot. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Butcher, grocer. None of them can spell. (laughs) Well, that's lovely, isn't it? Talking of butchers, there's been a verdict. There, there has been a verdict. Was that a smooth segue? Hey, I can't ba-bum. believe it. You are on fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean... It was expected, wasn't it? Yeah. I, interesting, a serial sex offender as well. <laughs> exactly. Libby Squire, uh, Pavel Relevitz. Pavel, how do we pronounce it? Pavel. Pavel, Pavel. Pavel. Yeah. Um, we covered this case, of course, a few episodes ago. And uh, the 26-year-old butcher has been found guilty. But um, it's received quite a lot of the media attention that I've seen for the case. has not been because a verdict's a verdict and not that many people get as excited as some of us might about it. But because of the way that the headlines have been portraying her as drunk and are saying that it's kind of victim blaming. Have you seen any of that, Ben? Yeah, you know, I have. Absolutely. And it's but it's difficult because, okay, this is where it gets really difficult. Unpopular opinion is that obviously any young woman should not be uh, attacked, raped and murdered. You know, obviously. But the the tragedy is, though, that she she had got lost and become disorientated and she had had two men offer her help and she'd also i think gone to a house full of students to get help and for whatever reason and was it that her judgment was impaired by alcohol instead of just getting help she'd carried on walking and and eventually found herself at the mercy of pavel relevich and so you just think if she hadn't you know if her judgment hadn't been quite so impaired by alcohol because she it was obviously somebody who, you know, she got lost, she was in trouble, but there were people who would have helped her and, and didn't help her because she, for whatever reason, rejected that help. I mean, so and, often, and that, that's a tragedy. So often with these crimes that we cover, it's a series of mistakes, bad judgments that lead to an awful thing happening. In this case, her sexual assault and murder. And also we were talking about uh, Levi Belfield and his victims and the parents of his victims and there's some of their accounts and this certainly is that her parents standing outside was it the old bailey 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the old Bailey, there was a lot of emotion there, a lot of emotion. Really, yeah, really terribly sad. So, um, not uh, not unexpected though, and um, maybe so they said that it wouldn't be a relief to them. It wouldn't. It wasn't really any closure, didn't they? Absolutely, yeah, that's right. And it, it, how can it be? You know, uh, no, in practical yeah. terms, you know, you can think about it and talk about it all you like. But the practical, uh, brutal, and tragic reality is that you have lost someone who you loved. And you know, uh, you know, as a parent myself, you know, I, my heart absolutely goes out to um, Libby's parents, uh, Lisa, and her father Russ, because you know, for them, I, it's it is truly an unimaginable loss. Unless you've been there, it's just. You can't imagine it. You, as a parent, you'll you'll understand that, of course, too, Victoria. I don't. Well, you know, you don't want to as well. Uh, you yeah. you imagine it for a few seconds when you see something like this, and then you just have to move on. It's a way of sort of surviving, I suppose. But um, this is all explored in um, History of a Drowning Boy, Dennis Nielsen's autobiography, as well. Really, isn't it that the motivation behind these crimes is very separate from and actually Dr Mark Pettigrew said there was no vindication there was no sympathy there was nothing from him in these choices that a serial killer makes that I found that quite interesting as well yeah no it was he was a really good guest and, and we have got another good guest coming up haven't we we really have I'm so excited <laughs> Should we talk about it now or leave, leave people dangling in suspense? Well, actually, they might want to go and look at some of her work, perhaps, because she's, well, yeah, yeah. she's got a book as well, which is gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah, it's really lovely. Priscilla, uh, yeah. Priscilla Coleman, who's the ITN courtroom artist. We've an old colleague of mine, old friend of mine, and um, she's came on. We, we're going to have a chat with her and that'll be in a couple of maybe next week, a couple of weeks time as soon as. Do um... you remember her from the Fred and Rose trial? I remember her from, yeah, I mean, I, I, well, I, I wasn't working with her then because in those days I was doing radio. So I was sort of, um, you know, the courtroom artists were people I was kind of aware of and slightly in awe of, if I'm being honest. The first time that Priscilla and I really worked together was on one of, in fact, she, um, you know, she'll probably talk about is uh, one of Gary Glitter's uh, early court appearances where he was remanded in custody after being arrested um, at the start of the long legal process that um, that he he's um, been subjected to. Um, and then we kind of just hit it off and, you know, she's she's a she's lots of fun. She's a real character. I mean, she's from mm. Texas. She's got an incredibly lovely accent, <laughs> yeah, real, mm. real proper Texan drawl. And, you know, she's and she I mean, she she really has seen it all. You know, she's been doing this a long time. And the great thing about the courtroom artist and of course, there's Priscilla, there's um, Julia who works for the BBC, there's Elizabeth who works for Sky. The great thing about them is everybody loves them. They don't get tarred with the sort of slightly sleazy journalist uh, brush that journalists do get tarred with. Everybody just loves the courtroom artists because they're kind of slightly above the the hoi polloi, the, the, the rabble of the media. Yes, she and strikes the, me as a glamorous art lady. Absolutely she is. And they sort of, they always get their, their little, you know, the court ushers are, all love them and make sure they, you know, we might have to scrabble around for seats in the, the press benches, but there's always a little area set aside for the courtroom artists they have a little room usually most courts are able to furnish them with a small room where they can do their drawing because of course they can't actually draw in court that uh, that's against the rules so anyway she's got lots of stories to tell and really looking forward to talking to her soon yes i think you want to be in her glamorous news lady drawing group I've been in, I have appeared in one or two of her drawings because she was a little, as a little in joke, she would occasionally depict the reporter she was working with somewhere in the drawing discreetly. Uh, We've had an email. Go on. And it says, 
In an episode sometime back, Ben explained he disapproved of buying someone a large white wine because it doesn't stay cool. I'd like to know if he'd buy someone a large red wine if they asked for it. The answer could determine whether Ben is concerned more about the quality of the wine than his wallet. And one of those crying faces is at the end of it. <laughs> I Thank absolutely you, will. I will be. Oh, Max. Okay, well, Max, I am more than happy to buy a, glass, a large glass of red wine and frequently do, as I think a certain person in the podcast will testify. Red? I don't drink red. Oh, That's that somebody case, else. I must be. Oops. <laughs> you can't Oops. remember because you were so you were so high. <laughs> I was so pissed <laughs> on my large glasses of red wine. <laughs> yeah, taking your dildo out to stir it with from your Poundland dildo. <laughs> That's a her going home present, was it, Ben? When you just although you couldn't actually fit the dildo into her small glass of wine. <laughs> That's <laughs> another reason for getting a large glass. <laughs> there you go. So what is it then? You want to use it for cocktails. <laughs> Very good. You're on fire tonight. No, seriously, what is this about buying a small glass of oh, wine? As, 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 as the uh, correspondent correctly says, when you're, when you're drinking white wine, I mean, I, I drink white wine as well. I like white wine, especially during summer. I like rosé too, come to that. But if I'm drinking... <laughs> There's basically nothing you don't turn down. <laughs> Quite. But if I'm drinking white or rosé wine i like it but it's that little bit chilled especially during summer and if it's good if, it, if it's served to you chilled you take it it's lovely unless you gulp it down really quickly then the bigger the glass the longer it takes you to drink so the warmer it's going to get so by the time you get to the bottom it's at room temperature and it's not as nice but if you just have a succession of smaller glasses then they are they're going to be cooler because you're going to get through them more quickly there's logic right, to it, well, honestly. There is logic to it. There's, um, yeah. Who, who fancies a night out with Ben and a small glass of wine, everyone? Hands up. <laughs> no, it's not just one small glass of wine. <laughs> oh, it's 15. And one of them's got a rohypnol in it, so you're fine. <laughs> roofie that. If I was, if I, if I was just going to roofie, it'd be one glass of a, a roofie and then straight away. Why would I spend more? <laughs> why would I buy more than one glass of wine? <laughs> there's, there's a glass of leaf round milk to love. Yeah. And off you go. <laughs> oh, there's your cheapest Pinot Grigio. Right, and uh, anything from your week gone by or your week ahead that you want to tell us about, alert us to at YDLMF Podcast or YDLMFpodcast at gmail dot com. Oh, that, that was right? you, Ben. I was asking. Oh, me? Yeah. Oh, I thought you were queuing me up to sort of tell people how they could reach out to us. Well, it worked out quite well, actually, but I just wanted to know if there was any... Well, I'll tell you what there is. OK, yes. so what, what there is, there's, <laughs> there's two things. First of all, one thing that made me laugh was... I'm picking up a bit on what Dr. Dr. Pettigrew was saying, was I saw this thing that was like... like um, an array of pictures of NHS staff. It had a nurse, it had a, an orderly, it had a surgeon, it had a doctor, it had a radiologist and so on. <laughs> and it said, you know, big thanks to you. And it had sort of you and you underneath that picture and you underneath that picture and you underneath the picture of the radiologist and you underneath the picture of the nurse. And then it had a picture of Harold Shipman. It said, not you. <laughs> Although, we'd like to thank all the serial killers. Big shout goes out to you for making our podcast what it is. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure that's in good taste. That's not in very good taste, is it? <laughs> Should we think of something else to tie it up on? Big shout out to all the serial killers who keep us in business, except we're not really in business. Well, we are. I've discovered that I'm going to be in business selling merch to... Are you? To criminologists like Dr. P. Oh, you are, aren't you? Those Colombo yeah. raincoats aren't going to sell themselves. 
Yeah, when he confessed that his line of work was actually quite mundane. <laughs> when the person delivering goes papers. To, when the person orders their Colombo raincoat raincoat and goes to check out, are you gonna have a little pop up that goes, Would you like just one last thing? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Can I alert you to the Nookie range? <laughs> oh, and that, well, on that Nookie. Happy note, on that happy Nookie note. range. On that happy yes. note. <laughs> yes, well, we're, yeah, for another week. Thank you for listening. We always, always appreciate it. We do, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to see how insincere you sounded. Sound said with winning insincerity. No, I do, I do, I do, of course I do. Anyway. Oh, it really touches me. <laughs> God. <laughs> All right, bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.